Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. We were flying out to Bangers uh, fly-in out at Clifton. It was a farm fly-in that they had every year. And um, we were were, uh, out near Gatton. And there was an almighty bang. And Graham very calmly said, we've just lost the prop. Instant glider. Um, You always wonder how well a plane will glide. Well, we found out the hard way. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills, I'm a QAM volunteer and I'll be your host for this episode. Now, you just heard the voice of Mrs Sue Schott, who spoke to me recently about her late husband Graham's project to build and fly his Rand Robinson KR2. That's a great conversation and that's coming up in just a moment. But I wanted to let you know about next week's episode, all about the Dassault Mirage, uh, which became for Australia, of course, the GAF Mirage. We're going to talk to RAAF Air Vice Marshal, retired and QAM volunteer and guide, Dave Dunlop, about the beginnings, the design and the role of the Mirage Uh, why Australia bought the Mirage 3, and then we're going to drill down and just look at at a little bit of the history of our Mirage A316 and uh, its uh, service life. And Dave's going to talk about what it was like to fly Mirages, and uh, he might even just mention, if you heard last week's episode, you may find this a connection, he's going to mention the exercises that RAAF pilots had uh, with RAF pilots putting up their mirages against the Hawker Hunters. So that's coming up next week. But for now, this is Sue Shot. So I'm sitting in Hangar 2 at the Queensland Air Museum with Mrs Sue Shot. Hello, Sue. Hi, Gary. Thank you for this. I've been looking forward to this because this is a story that not very many people perhaps get a chance to hear, and it's such a great, it's just such a great piece of us of Australia's aviation heritage and of local aviation heritage here as well. So let's start with you. Where are you from, and do you have a background in aviation? Um, I'm originally from Bell, out near Dolby in Queensland, and um, no, I have no um, background in aviation. You're like many of us, you know about aviation by being a passenger, is that right? But I think your your late husband, Graham, had a very extensive background in aviation. What was his uh, story? Well, he, he just loved the idea of flying from when he was a little boy. He said, he used to say, you know, he, he'd lie down and uh, see the clouds and think, oh, that'd, that'd be great to be amongst the clouds. And um, um, yeah, he wasn't from a background of flying or anything like that. Uh, but after senior, he did join the um, Air Force Academy and he did two years there. Um, did a little bit of flying in that. Um, but in his second year, he was made entertainments officer, which apparently he was good at. 
but from a kid who'd been in boarding schools and so forth and on the farm, um, that was a whole new world. And his studies, which he'd never had problems with, I mean, you know, he, he was a kid who'd got 10 A's for junior and things like that. Um, his, he failed um, uni and um, so he failed out of the Air Force and the uh, warden there suggested he go teaching, and which he did. So just before you go on, what era was that? What years was, was he in the Air Force? The Air Force would have been 64 to 65. Okay, so he would have been on jets by that time, before, by the time he, he left, or had he just no, been beginning? No, they, they really just gave them a taste of flying, I think. Um, I think they were Mackies, I yes. think, in that di- time, yeah. So he leaves the Air Force, goes into teaching? Yes, he uh, did a year of teaching and his first school just happened to be Bell and that's that's where we met and um, and because he didn't have a family to go home to every weekend like everybody did, he was estranged from his stepfather and his mother had died when he was in um, uh, senior. Um, he spent the weekends uh, in Bell and uh, that's when he started flying in Dolby and and in fact um, I did do a couple of uh, joy flights with him before we, or well, well the first one was really uh, before we started dating and um, I think we were might have been set up by um, uh, my sister's then boyfriend <laughs> who he was friendly with and um, uh, it, it wasn't a great great time. I got a bit actually. I got a little bit seedy that time too. And uh, while uh, she was up in the air with him, I got attacked by a, a magpie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a very auspicious beginning to a relationship, which then you were together all of your lives, weren't you? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, uh, we um, in '68 he got his. Well, he always says he got his pilot's licence, his ham radio licence and his marriage licence all in the same year. <laughs> um, but then, you know, as uh, you know, we were pretty broke uh, after that and we didn't, he didn't uh, pursue flying uh, for many years after that. And um, So did he stay as a school teacher? Yes, yes. He uh, eventually, he, the, in... 69 he was transferred to Brisbane because he'd done as much uni uh, externally as he could and um, he finished his degree and um, um, taught initially at Everton Park and then at the Gap. Now what was he teaching? Uh, Science and maths and um, yeah and um, yeah he was a very bright boy and um, in later years he taught adults who came back to do their senior and they did external exams like you know we did when we were at school you know that the normal high school had gone to um, school school based assessments but they did his students all did external exams so did he teach right through to retirement age yes yeah well, what year did he retire he took early retirement actually well, somewhere along the way, he got the idea that he wanted to build his own aeroplane, and uh, I think you began that process in around '92. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. Because uh, it took him six and a half years, and it got going in '98. So, uh, 
Yes. Well, so had he been doing much flying throughout his his life as well, just recreationally? I used to give him, I used to say, I'll give you an hour's flying for Father's Day. And at one stage I said, you know, you better come and cash in those hours because we'll never be able to afford to to do it otherwise. And... um, and our son, who was born in 71, so he was about 15, I suppose, he um, decided we had the holiday... Well, Dad had the holiday house up here. and uh, so On the Sunshine Coast. The Sunshine Coast and at Caloundra. And um, so school holidays, he thought, oh, I'll go flying at Caloundra, and, and that's... Yeah, but he did have a long relationship, didn't he, with the Caloundra Aero Club? He, he was president at some point, wasn't he? He was president for a number of years, uh, right up until he got sick. OK, so aviation was still in his blood. The, 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 he wanted to be a bird all of his life. And so you must have had a conversation about this idea of a project to build his own kit aeroplane. How did that come about? Well, he was actually going to buy... He'd, he'd been... a. Um, for a flight in a drifter because the, a friend I was talking about before, uh, one of his ex-students, had started learning to fly and he was flying a drifter and and Graham had gone flying with him and he thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll get a drifter. And around that time, my father died. So that, that was 87. Uh, my father died. And, of course, ultralights didn't have a great reputation and I said look if you're going to fly get a proper proper aeroplane because I don't think I could handle something happening to you so soon after something happening to him you know losing my father so he started investigating and and by this stage he was um, involved with the sports aircraft uh, association he they'd come up here and had a son and fun day up here and he thought oh yeah that, that was good and so he started investigating different types of um, uh, home built aeroplanes and uh, thought that was that was what he could afford. And he settled on the Rand Robinson and we have that very aircraft here now on display at the museum because you both very kindly donated that to us. Uh, let's talk about this. So this is being uh, built under your house in Brisbane, is that right? That's How right. was that? <laughs> well, my sister still says she lost her, her car, <laughs> car space when <laughs> she used to come to visit. Yeah, that, it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> very interesting, actually. But it was very handy to be able to just... He'd come home from work and uh, just go down and do a little bit and... and uh, you know, and I, I'd go down and hold hold this or hold that or or whatever. So for our listeners, it's it's a Rand Robertson KR2, which is the two-seater, and I think you named it the Beast. <laughs> but its registration is uh, X-ray X-ray Sierra. Is there something significant about XXS? Well, I actually name got the uh, call sign because. He went into town in Brisbane to um, reg- you know, get a registration and all that sort of thing and he was hoping to get GTS or, uh, because that was his initials, or KR something and he came home and he said, oh, look, I couldn't get anything like this but 
So I chose this, which I can't remember, uh, but this is the list that I could choose. And I looked at it and I said, well, XXS, that's extra, extra small in women's clothing. That seems appropriate to me. And Perfect. So he went back and he changed it and we're very pleased that he did because it was known far and wide as extra, extra small. And, uh... <laughs> and it is tiny, let's face it. Uh, I've seen photographs of uh, two people <laughs> very squeezed up inside there, but not uncomfortable, I guess. How was it uh, sitting side by side in this tiny little cockpit? No, we had we had plenty of space really, and uh, and we we actually camped out of it in in various places. But you had to be very judicious with your packing and and things. For instance, I had a seat back uh, that was not the normal seat back that's in there now, but it was one that was used when we were camping, and it was hollow, which I used to fill up with clothing that that was my luggage and uh, we'd sit on on the tent and the sleeping bag and and we had I'd made um, some hollow tubes and they'd be filled up with chrome singlets and so forth and go up the you know, the wings because there was a little space within the wings that they could do that and and uh, and that led led to some funny comments I can remember one time we were down at Narromine and we had the tent set, set up beside it and I'd gone in to have a little bit of a rest in the afternoon and, you know, people wandering around looking at the, the aircraft around there and I heard these comments, gee, you know, those wooden seats, they'd be uncomfortable and, and you know, other people saying, uh, well, they must have taken the seats out too because they're worried about the sun on them or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you and Graham travelled far and wide in the beast, didn't you? Well, we did. We we went down um, down as far as uh, well. We flew over the Great Ocean Road. We went down to Avalon Air Show uh, one year, and and uh, and and then across to um, uh, Warrnambool, and uh, that coincided with when it was when the um, uh, I think it might have been the Formula One had been in Adelaide, and. Uh, uh, we had uh, one of the jets coming towards us and, uh, in, oh, yes, we've got the lighty, you know, <laughs> we're <laughs> talking. And, but it was quite interesting because we uh, could see all these people on the Great Asian Road at the viewpoints and and uh, they were obviously taking photos of us as well. And um, So, yeah, so that far south, um, our first... Well, we used to go up to Raglan. There was an air show up at Raglan, a farm up there which every year and we, that was our first actually uh, big flight in fact he had to get special permission to take me as an observer um, uh, not as a passenger because he was within the first 50 hours of him flying flying and um, and we flew right up over the tip of Queensland and another trip and, um, and it's an amazing little airplane I mean it 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 was quite fast, wasn't it? And, and it was very light, uh, but powered by a very small engine. I think most uh, Rand Robinsons had a Volkswagen engine, but Graham chose a Continental. Was there a story behind that? It was just that it was a proper aeroplane engine, I think, and uh, he liked that idea. When we bought, we bought it as an abandoned project, and uh, it came with a Volkswagen engine, which actually he sold to somebody who was going to put it into um, 
a um, gyrocopter. Yeah. Well, over 300 kilometres an hour, I believe, was its top speed. Yeah, it went fast enough. And so, uh, as a kit uh, project, which had already been started uh, and he completed, you say it took six, six and a half years to complete. I believe it's all wood construction with fiberglass and foam and so on. So it's designed to be uh, uh, registered as an experimental craft as well under that category. Well, in those early days, it, it was before experimental when, when we first started it. Um, so it was built under the regulations of the sports aircraft. I can't remember what, what that was called before experimental. But he had to get... He had to have a um, an inspection by a woodman and a plastics man, which was what they called the, the fiberglass. But yes, the the guy who started the project was actually a builder, so all the woodwork was done and and it was done very well. Graham didn't like the fiberglass that he had done, so he he started the fiberglassing from uh, scratch. And that was done over like a green foam. Did he enjoy building it? Uh, yes, I think I think towards the end he got a bit impatient that, uh, you know, there's a bit of a saying with the home builders, uh, 95% done, 95% to go. I think it's <laughs> something like that. But uh, <laughs> Well, he did finish it and in 98, I think you say, it took, he took his first flight. Yes. Um, and uh, that must have been a, a big day for everyone. It, it was a big day. We'd taken it out to Archerfield because we were still living in Brisbane at the time and it had gone out on the back of the truck and then, of course, we had to reassemble the wings because the wings came bolted off. And he'd organised for, Gary, uh, for Barry Hempel to do the test flying and... Barry, who he was a bit in awe of, he, uh, for those who don't know Barry, he, um, he did aerobatics and he had flying school and all of that sort of thing and, and he did a lot of performance stuff and, and so Graham was a bit in a bit of awe of him and he sort of said, oh, you know, KR2, oh, I, don't, I don't like KR2s and it's got a tricycle gear and, and, uh, and you've got a handheld radio. I don't like handheld radios. <laughs> anyway, he, he uh, took it for its first flight and, and it, it failed the braking um, because the brakes were really designed for the... Um, Not for the tricycle. He'd, he had... He'd um, got uh, Bill Whitney, um, who was an aeronautical engineer, to could, because he had to get any alterations signed off by an electrical engineer, and Bill had um, signed off on the tricycle gear. And I mean, he wasn't—he was probably the first person in Australia to put tricycle gear on it. And why was that? I think he'd he'd been flying with a friend who had. Um, uh, t- tail dragger, and um, they'd, they'd loop the loop sort of thing on, on landing. And I'd seen it, and he, I think he thought, mm, I don't think I, I think I'd rather have a tricycle gear. He just thought it would be safer for him. So that was not retractable. No, no, and that did slow it down a little bit. Yeah. So Barry takes it for the first flight, and what what was his reaction? Well, he came, he came back and he said, what have you done to that? Well, apart from the fact that, yeah, he said the brakes aren't good enough, you need to get 
decent breaks. Um, but he said, what have you done with the radio? Because he said, that's the best handheld radio I've ever seen. And, and of course, Graham was a ham radio operator, so he he'd knew about uh, aerials. And of course, he was also a physics teacher. And, and uh, the aerial sort of went right back in, inside and all that sort of thing. And, and um, some person came, came along and was being very critical of, you know, KRs and, and Barry sort of said, well, I, I didn't think this was a, this would be any good, but it's taken both of us up there, and this was one of the, uh, the criticisms of this fellow, oh, you know, you can't carry any weight. And he said, well, Graham and I have both been up in it, and, and, um, and he said, neither of us are very small people, and uh, it's managed to carry us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think Graham was about 10 feet tall at that point that uh, Barry had stood up for his little claim. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned earlier the Avalon Air Show. There's a story about Graham sharing a circuit with an F-111 or something. What happened there? Well, yeah, we'd, we had an interesting flight into, into Avalon. Um, he decided we'd stayed the night at Ballarat because he wanted... He wanted to be fresh um, going in there, and um, and it was supposed to be you know a good day and everything. But we went up, we got up in the morning and there was fog everywhere. It was as thick as. And, but eventually we went out to the airport and and uh, somebody said, oh you know once you get up out of it and then it was starting to lift. It's clear clear all the way, and of course going into Avalon you have a time slot where you're supposed to be, and he was had this time slot and time was getting away and and um, anyway we eventually we uh, took off and um, when we got up and uh, through this bit of bit of fog that was still there it wasn't particularly clear at all and and um, we'd ended up having to dart around showers and stuff and so the stress levels were fairly high and then he called in to no, um, you have to go out and circle around the prison. Where's that? <laughs> so, so anyway, um, because the F-111 was doing a practice run, and and he was, as I say, he was also worrying at that stage about fuel because we'd we this flight was longer than we'd intended. Anyway, he managed to, he saw another, uh, a little Piper Cub and they were doing circuits and we sort of followed them around and um, once, he said, once I realised that this guy could really fly, he said, I, I just ta- tagged on behind him and, and uh, I felt felt safe. And But I was really worried about that I might have to land on the road because, uh, because they were holding us up so much. And then eventually, um, either. And it's very interesting to see the F-111 doing a practice run when you're up in the air because they did a fuel dump and everything, and and uh, yeah, it was fascinating. But I saw a photograph of Graham after that flight with the uh, F-111 crew. That must have been fun. Oh, it, it was. <laughs> to start with. Um, after we had landed and parked the aeroplane, we're walking back and um, this Air Force car came along and, uh, and Graham sort of said to them, oh, do you know where we have to go? And, and, uh, and then he realised, oh, Air Force people, and he said, 
oh, you're not, you're not one of the, the F111 fellows. No, but the guys in the back are. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, he, he met the guy from the, the Piper and uh, said, you know, thanked him very much for being such a reassuring person. And then, and in one of those life's uh, little coincidences, that F111 pilot was Craig Whiting, known as Fish, who comes from Caloundra and uh, lives, apparently lives down the street from me. Now tell me, Sue, were there ever any scary incidents while you were flying together? Uh, yes. We, we had what we call our incident. Um, we were flying out to uh, Bangers uh, fly-in out of Clifton. It was a farm fly-in that they had every year. And um, we were, we were uh, out near Gatton and there was an almighty bang and Graham very calmly said, we've just lost the prop. Instant glider. Um, you always wonder how well a plane will glide. Well, we found out the hard way that it glides very, very well. And at 5,000 feet, we saw this new bit of road that looked um, promising. So he did an absolutely perfect approach and he, call, he called Mayday and all of that and they, they were talking to him like 20 to the dozen and event, in the end he just sort of said, look, I'll talk to you when I'm on the ground. I, I, I need to concentrate. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there was this um, new piece of road that um, in one of life's coincidences, a friend of ours was actually the engineer on that particular part of the road. <laughs> and... Um, um, he had to go around a big grader, but um, yeah, it, he did a perfect job. And that was the Gatton Bypass? That was the Gatton Bypass Road, yes. And so what happened to the prop? Well, <laughs> funnily, um, we, you know, we thought, oh gee, I, hope, I wonder what's happened to the prop. I hope, hope it hasn't hurt anybody on the way, was our first thought. Well. Uh, my sister-in-law at the time was working for Triple O, um, taking for the ambulance, and so I rang my brother and and uh, said, um, "Is Katie working today?" And she said, "He said yes." I said, "Well, could you ring her and and just let her know that if anyone rings about a plane accident, we don't need an ambulance." You know what? <laughs> and um, anyway, she rang me back a little bit later and said. Don't do anything. Channel 9 is sending a helicopter. So we then had to, by this time, Frank had arrived with the trailer and, and we were starting to dismantle the wings and so forth to put it on the trailer. So then we had to sort of stop everything and, and the next thing, this helicopter comes in. And um, so halfway through the interview with this uh, Channel 9 reporter, these kids arrive with the prop and they'd been herring around the farm in a ute uh, like country kids do and saw something shiny and thought it might have been a newly born calf or something and went over to investigate and it was the prop. And so they arrived with this propeller and it was just a great part of the story. In fact, 
a couple of years later, we were up here one day and um, the helicopter pilot was now a uh, pilot for the rescue hop chopper up here and came over and saw us and he said, you know, when those kids arrived with the prop, the, the reporter was so excited and he nearly wet himself. <laughs> But it was, it was a great part of that story and and apparently Channel 9, well any of the channels, like a good news story on a Sunday night and it, and they'd had a couple of, they'd had a couple of disasters, you know, in previous years so it was a good news story. And we even, in fact I, I could have, should have brought that out to show you because we even made the front page of the Toowoomba Chronicle with, is it a bird, is it a plane, no it's a miracle or something like that. <laughs> And had the prop broken or had just come come off? No, the crankshaft broke. Okay. And when we'd, we'd bought another engine because the original engine we had, and that's actually how the plane got the title of the beast because sometimes it was a beast of a thing to start because um, Graham had to hand, yeah. hand prop the engine to start. So... He thought, oh, I'm getting a bit older, I'll, I'll uh, upgrade the engine so that it's got an automatic uh, starter motor. So, uh, and when he bought this engine, he carefully looked at all the logbooks and everything, and we bought it from Port Macquarie from a really old guy, and the, the bookwork was correct. What we found a few weeks later by somebody who came from Port Macquarie was that that engine had that had a um, uh, metal prop on the on the engine and they'd had a prop strike on landing and that would have started the the circular um, crack the fracture and um, yeah so that's we and we'd flown behind it for about 200 hours and uh, at that point wonderful story the, the I think another memorable flight from our perspective was when he became a chase plane, a photographic chase plane for our Wirraway as it was coming in, being delivered here to Caloundra Airport for its final flight. And uh, uh, Graham took one of our volunteers with him up into the air with his camera and they photographed the arrival of the Wirraway. Yes, and, and I, I think he was tickled pink to, uh, to do that. He he had actually done a um, a formation um, license uh, with Lester and and with our son Peter, who's also a pilot, and um, and he said that was just a very special thing to do. But that was just so that he could do things like that, and and um, and we've got some lovely photos of the KR in the from the air. Yeah, flying in formation. Yeah. Now, everyone who sees a photograph of Graham, particularly when he's in the cockpit, will notice the red hat. What's the story behind the red hat? Well, he before we ever got got uh, the plane going, he was uh, he was up here, and sports aircraft had a little fly-in up here, and he became involved with that. And he just happened to have a red hat on that day. And um, a few people remarked on the fact that 
Oh, we couldn't actually see what you were doing, but we could see the red hat because he was he was helping um, uh, park aircraft. Yeah, and he thought, well, that's a good idea, you know. So, so he always wore a red hat, and red toweling hats were not terribly fashionable and it was became very difficult to buy a red toweling hat so I ended up making the red hats and I even made you know a number a number of either toweling or polar fleece hats as I understand it the red red hat is in the cockpit of uh, the beast as part of the display if you come down to the Queensland Air Museum at Caloundra the Rand Robinson is currently in Hangar 2. It's actually mounted up high above the facilities block, which is, seems a little ignominious. However, the reality is we don't have enough room here for all the displays that we already have, and so things get moved around. Some of them are hung off the rafters in the hangars as well. It is a shame in a way, isn't it, because it's a little bit hard to see up there, um, but it, it is uh, on display permanently here. Um, it's a lovely little aeroplane, and look, I think you donated it, you and Graham donated it in 2013, and sadly that was also the year that uh, you lost Graham. Um, he, he stipulated that it not be flown, but that it be part of our display, and that's perfect because our aircraft don't fly. Um, he, what was his connection with QAM before that? Why was it that he donated it here? Well... He used to, um, as I say, he was, was president of Aero Club and we had a monthly competition and he'd always, he always, he got friendly with a couple of the guys from over here, although he never, I don't think he ever volunteered over here, but um, he thought, and he used to um, ask if any of them wanted to come up and backseat on competition days and a couple of the, the people did, but he he felt that well he didn't he didn't want the plane to be sold because he didn't want to if anything happened he didn't want it coming back on me and he was also of the opinion that it was now an experimental aircraft and the basis of the experimental um, category was that it was done for people's learning and that sort of thing and he he just didn't want it uh, flown and he thought well it's part of the Caloundra history it was based up here parked on a trailer at the airfield that he made um, well as you say it is a part of our local aviation history here it's a lovely little addition to the collection and a beautiful story about how it came to be here and about how you and Graham were able to you know enjoy so many times together in the air well, look, thank you so much for talking to us today, Sue. Thank you, uh, and on your behalf, we, we, we are thankful to you and Graham for um, that story, but also for the donation to us, because uh, this is the, the whole point of our museum, is to preserve Australia's aviation heritage. And this is a, a small but very important aspect of that, and it's been wonderful to, to hear some of those stories and to get to know Graham a little bit through your, through your voice. Thank you for being here today. That's my pleasure. Thank you, Gary. What a delightful lady. Thanks very much to Sue for coming in and talking with us. That was a great story. So that's our episode. Don't forget we're open 
from 10am to 4pm every day except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. We're at Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, just across the road from the Caloundra Aerodrome, and we would love to see you. Come and visit us, tell us you've heard the podcast so that we know that the people who are listening, maybe we can meet as well. We'll see you soon. Bye for now.